Welcome to Acre Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Caroline Page. Caroline was a navigator in the RAF flying the F4 Phantom, Wessex, and Merlin. In this episode, she talks about flying all the types and why she went from fast jets to helicopters. She also includes some great stories as well as a personal side. We also have two new features on our website. First is a newsletter that when you sign up, it gives you updates and news. The second is our patron page. So if you like what we do here, you could become one of our patrons by subscribing monthly, which there are three different levels. The costs go directly back into the channel and cover transport, accommodation, donations to museums for the backdrops. So please check out our website for all the features and we hope to see you soon at www.aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. So Caroline, how did you become interested in aviation? Oh, it all goes back to my youth. Uh, as, a, as a youngster, um, I, my father was in the army, he was a sergeant in the artillery, we moved around a, a lot, and we were in Malaya at the time, and quite close to our house, uh, used to be a landing strip, and helicopters used to come in, uh, Scout, Belvedere, uh, Whirlwind, uh, those kind of things, and I used to watch them as a school kid and be fascinated by them. And then when he left the army, we re- and when he retired, we moved to uh, Cheshire, the Wirral, and I went to school there, and I discovered the air cadets, and this thing about flying had, been, had stuck with me, and the air cadets sounded like a really good thing to do. So I joined uh, the air cadets, and it was fantastic fun. It was to do with aeroplanes. I learned a lot about aeroplanes, and I actually got to go flying. And... By the time I was 15, I applied for my um, gliding scholarship and was successful, so I went and did a gliding course, uh, and going solo in a glider was just absolutely fantastic, and that led on to um, a wish to fly, become a pilot, and uh, so when I got to 17, I applied for a flying scholarship, uh, and I won that as well, so I ended up getting a private pilot's license. Um, and that was the start of my so by the time I was 17 I was well and truly into aviation and I had this ambition then to make it a career um, so whilst all my friends I couldn't drive, I didn't have a driving licence but while all my friends were bragging in sixth form that they all had driving licences and things, so, wow I've got a pilot's licence <laughs> What was your first flying experience? Um, if we just count flying out to Malaya in the, in the back of a uh, Britannia, I think it was. Um, my first real flying experience was as an cadet, uh, air experience flying in Chipmunks. So, what year did you join the RAF? I joined the Air Force in 1980, in January 1980. Um, I joined from Liverpool, from the uh, Careers Information Office there. As I mentioned, I'd already had a, a flying scholarship um, and it was the next step, really, to go flying. I, uh, I wanted to be a pilot and the only option I had that gave me that opportunity um, in terms of finance, because I couldn't afford to pay for my own licences and things, if I wanted to go into the commercial world, then it was going to cost a fortune and uh, we didn't have any money. So, um, so I looked at military options. I looked at the Navy, and they said, yeah, great, you can come and fly uh, helicopters, but you also have to work with boats. And the Army said, yeah, you can come fly helicopters, but first of all, you have to work with tanks or whatever. And the Air Force said, yeah, you can come and fly, uh, and you can fly airplanes. So that sounded the best option for me. So that's why I joined the Air Force. And I joined in 1980. Did you have a specific type and role you wanted? Yes, uh, as a pilot I wanted to fly helicopters because that had been my fascination as a youngster, that was the attraction. Um, I enjoyed flying fixed wing um, with my pilot's licence, but um, I actually thought I was going to be flying helicopters when I joined the Air Force. <clears throat> Little did I know. <laughs> when did your training start and what did it entail? My training started fairly shortly afterwards. I did um, Cranwell for officer training from January 80 through to May uh, 80. And fairly soon after that, I went up to Linton on News to fly the Jet Provost uh, Mark III. And it was a little bit of a, a trial. I think it had been running a while, but um, 
they used to take uh, people through um, chipmunks at Swinderby uh, for flying selection, so people had military experience, but because I already had a pilot's licence, I went straight onto Jet Province, which was probably a little bit of a downfall for me, as we'll come on to uh, shortly. Um, so I started on the JP3, uh, Linton on Ooze, in uh, in about June, July uh, 1980, and by the time I got to the end of the year, they were advising me that I might want to consider a different career, which was a great shame. <clears throat> yeah. So can you tell us a bit about your Jet Propers experience? Yeah, well, to start with, it wasn't very good. <laughs> I, I loved flying the Jet Provers. It was a jet, and actually you go solo as a 19-year-old or whatever. Um, to be up in a, in a jet-powered aircraft on your own was fantastic, so I, I did get to go solo a few times. But then they decided that my learning wasn't keeping up with uh, the pace that they wanted or expected. If, I, if there was more money available, then I could have uh, probably cracked it, but there wasn't. Uh, and in those days, it was kind of a, a harsh world. It was, uh, sorry, you're out of here, gone. A little bit different to today. Where they uh, do their best to try and keep you and give you uh, follow-up packages and things. So um, I was absolutely gutted that my uh, career as a pilot was coming to an end. But they offered me Navigator. And I hadn't considered Navigator as uh, an option, really, when I joined. So I had to think about that. Um, but I was still um, I was still wanting to be in a cockpit and I thought if I ended up uh, in a cockpit on uh, as a navigator that was that was going to be good for me and um, not all not all chop pilots because I was chopped um, not all chopped pilots um, could go navigator because there was different selection tests and different um, criteria that had, you had to pass going through uh, your officer and air crew selection procedures. Um, but fortunately, I, I ticked the, the right boxes, so I was offered navigator training, went off to Finningley, and I started Finningley in 81. Uh, initially on the Domini, uh, then onto the Jet Provost, back to the Domini, and then onto the Jet Provost again. And these Jet Provosts were JP5s, and that was a much nicer machine. It was far more powerful, had a, a much uh, uh, nicer, more um, glass cockpit. Not glass cockpit in terms of instrumentation, but more glass for, for, for you to look out. Uh, a little bit of a better view if you compare the two aircraft uh, to each other. But it was the performance thing. It had a pressurised cockpit and it was just a really lovely aeroplane. Um, when I was at Finningley, the first part was uh, on Dominies and you sat at the back, two navigators just sat there facing a, a panel, very similar to Vulcan sort of thing. It was geared up around Vulcan. And this, this was my first clue that navigator training and pilot training were completely different. Pilot training, they wanted you to be fast jet people. You couldn't join and say, I want to be a helicopter person. You had to want to strive to fast jets. And this was an issue I had when I was going through training. Uh, navigator seemed to be the other way around. They wanted you to be um, good at all of the, uh, the upper air stuff and, and the Vulcan. And of course, the Vulcan went into a low-level role as well. But it, was, it was, wasn't a cockpit, it was in a fuselage, and I didn't want to do that. As much as it was a great job, and um, I'm sure the guys and girls that uh, go onto those aircraft types love it, but it wasn't just for me. I wanted to be in a cockpit. So uh, then I went on to the JP-5, and that was looking at um, visual nav. So it was all down at 250 feet, um, and it was at 240 to 300 knots. And that suited me down to the ground, but it was all kind of targets and timings and that kind of stuff, low-level navigation. And that's, that, that was more where I wanted to be. Back onto the Domini, do the radar phase, and the radar phase was fantastic fun. It was radar prediction, so you're down at low level again, 250 feet in a Domini, using the radar to find your way around and to uh, make sure you don't bump into um, hills and things like this. Um, then back in, and then you got streamed, and I got streamed air defence, which was exactly what I wanted. So I uh, went onto a JP and went back into um, the um, air intercept role, uh, more like an air combat thing in the in the JP, because of course it didn't have a radar. So on the jet provost then we went and did uh, air combat one against one. We bounced our mates who were going and doing the, um, the strike or the mud moving package, the guys that were going to go to Buccaneers and GR1s. They would go off and fly a mission and it was our job to intercept them and give them a hard time and get them behind timings and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was great fun for me. And that's where I wanted to be, air defence. That was it, uh, in the cockpit. That's where I wanted to be. 
but it wasn't a given so I still had to meet all the criteria for all phases of the course and at the end of it you um, uh, all the staff get together with uh, the posting officers, the squadron commanders, the whole group of people, they decide your future. And I was really scared that I wasn't going to get, because I wanted Phantom, because that was the only two-seat fighter uh, around at the time. Um, so I was scared I wasn't going to get that. Here, Caroline talks about her time flying the F-4 Phantom. Well, um... At the end of the course, we all had to go to the bar, and each course has a different way of uh, learning what aircraft you're going to go and fly. And uh, for my course, it was decided that the aircraft that you're going to be uh, posted to was at the bottom of a glass of beer. So you had to drink this beer, and when you uh, got down to the bottom of it, there was the aircraft that you're going to go and fly. And I was the last person to go up there, and there was... Um, We'd already been told there was a camera slot and all the other places had gone and one of my friends had gone Buccaneers and another friend had gone off to Phantoms. And uh, so I, I kind of resigned myself to the fact I was going to Canberra. Now, Canberra, um, lovely aeroplane, fantastic. And, uh, you know, if I went to Canberra's, I would have enjoyed flying Canberra's and it had a really great role. But I wanted to go. The Phantoms wanted to go to defence. So I was a little bit sort of worried um, that I wasn't going to get where I wanted to go. Uh, so I drank the, uh, the drink, and there it was, a phantom at the bottom of the glass. And a uh, big smile that would probably have been seen from space, really. Um, so phantom, here's one I prepared earlier, so I can show you around if you like. Right, so here we are in the uh, backseat uh, cockpit of the uh, F4, X-ray Victor 490. Uh, it's at New York. Um, I'll just talk you around it very, very quickly. This is a um, uh, F4M. I was mostly based on uh, F4Ks, which was the FG1. So this is an M model. Um, very slightly different uh, in that it's got an inertial navigation system on the, on the right-hand side here, which um, would have been a fantastic bonus on QRA. So... Um, what have we got then? Uh, things that you can see at the moment up here are the, uh, this is the uh, TESS, the uh, telescopic sighting system, which gives you a 10 times magnification because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, you want to shoot something. If you've got uh, an aircraft with uh, missiles that go a long way and uh, they're going to be radar guided, um, then uh, it's pointless having to get really, really close to an enemy to um, to use them. So you want to see as quickly as possible. Now, in the days of the Cold War, it was easy because anything that was uh, heading east to west at uh, high speeds um, during the time of war, uh, unless it was squawking uh, friendly or unless uh, it had been identified as friendly as friendly fighters coming back maybe or whatever by uh, an air defence unit, if it was um, not one of ours, then it was going to get shot head on. So you would lose a, a, a sky flash for that. However, sometimes if you're not sure and you want to see what it is, the only way you can really do that, in the, especially in those days, was visually. And so the first person to see has an advantage, has a little bit of an advantage. So this was brought in probably uh, mid-80s, and it, oh, it's, it's a simple sighting system. was on a tank uh, before it ended up on uh, uh, a Mach 2 aeroplane. And uh, all it enabled me was to uh, lock to a target the... Um, with the radar, the, the, the pilot could manoeuvre a dot to put it into the bore sight of the aircraft, uh, and then I could look through here and hopefully see what it was. And as soon as I could identify it as friendly or foe, then we could shoot. Obviously, if it's a foe, you know, we don't want to shoot if it's friendly. Uh, so that's what that is. Uh, then on the top of here, this was a chaff and flare. Chaff and flare system for protecting countermeasures, protecting ourselves. You could set up various uh, profiles for how many flares you want to go out with, what sequencing, and all that. And then it was released. There's another button there. There's a button here. I would release the uh, flares in the back. Um, more often than that, uh, only ever saw those in uh, in the Falklands. We didn't really carry them on on QRA, really. Um, and then we've got flight instruments, very basic flight instruments, so uh, an altimeter, uh, an attitude indicator, uh, an airspeed, uh, a Mach meter, uh, and, a, and a heading reference system uh, along the top. 
very very few uh, cautions up here so if there's a, a problem with the aircraft and it gives you a caution most of them are in the front but you get a few of the more important ones in the back here as well and um, there's a master caution uh, also as well uh, eject there's an eject light there so if uh, he wants me he doesn't like my banter anymore and says presses that button then I have to eject so that's quite bad um, in the Phantom there was no command eject system so uh, the standard procedure especially at low level was if there was no time to do anything uh, any kind of warning the uh, front seat just ejected so you're sitting here and the front seat canopy comes up the guy goes out gets very windy uh, all of a sudden that's a good cue to be leaving the airplane yourself so then you would eject there's no command eject um, normally the standard was for uh, the back seater to eject first because obviously he's flying the aeroplane so the back would go uh, and also that would get rid of the canopy out of the way uh, because if he went and I went at the same time I would be hit by a canopy and that would be bad so it's kind of um, SOP but coordinated if you needed to leave the aircraft at all um, the main part of the aeroplane though uh, for me as navigator apart from looking out was uh, the radar here system so we can have a look at that in a, a short while down the left hand side we've got all the radar controls right hand side we've got screen and that would normally come up and you would be able to see it or it would be up here um, and then I'd be trying to protect it from the sun because uh, it, it was very difficult to see the display of it in bright suns and, and some guys made little devices to go on top to keep the sun off but, uh, and then there's a controller here so with that controller I could do various functions uh, with the radar fantastic radar pulse doppler as I said look down shoot down very very good radar um, in its day uh, there's radars around uh, clearly now that surpass it but then that's the digital age so you would expect nothing less um, the inertial navigation system down that side and then down this side really is the communications uh, the, the TACAN the um, HF radio which again HF radio was only fitted to the um, FDR2s the um, mic model not to the case um, which is a bit bizarre because we were tended to do all the long range away from anybody uh, sometimes usually you had radio contact with somebody but not all the time so especially if you went low level right out in the Iceland Faroes area you wouldn't be able to speak to anybody so it would have been nice to have an HF maybe um, uh, Takan was good for beacons um, out to about 186 miles outside that, not much use. But you could also use it for an air-to-air -air mode, so you could get um, distance from a wingman or or, um, or a tanker, more importantly, see how far away your tanker is and look at the fuel and go, yeah, we've got enough. Um, and that's pretty much it, really. Uh, the ejection seat. Um, Never had to use it, thankfully. A uh, couple of occasions where it came close, but not had to use it. Um, you dialed your weight in. Uh, well, I can show you that shortly. Um, and then you're attached uh, to the ejection seat with uh, um, a PC, a uh, personal equipment connector, which had your G-suit, supp air supply, and your oxygen supply, and your intercom, and all that kind of stuff. Up here's the um, pins for the seat. Uh, there should be um, five up there. Hopefully, if you, it's just a reminder so that if you get airborne and you look around and there's, uh, there's a gap, then there's a, oh, there's a pin in the seat, that's bad. That means the seat probably won't work if you need to use it. Uh, canopy emergency jetson, and uh, that's pretty much it. Got a clock, so got a clock. So could you tell us some of your roles on the F4? Uh, roles on the F4? Um, by the time I got to the F4, it was um, purely used in the air defence role. It had been used uh, for strike, ground attack, but it was purely air defence, which was great because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I went to the F4 in uh, 82, and I was posted to RAF Lucas and uh, Travel One Squadron. And RAF Lucas, uh, you'll always get F4 guys saying that the base that they went to was the best because the Germany guys would say Germany was where it was at. The Wadisham guys would say Wadisham is where it's at or Coningsby. But for me, it really was at Lucas because um, for several reasons, one of which was the unrestricted airspace that was around you. You'd come off the runway and you'd be over the Scottish Highlands in one direction or over the sea uh, in the other direction where you were totally unrestricted for doing supersonics and things like this. 
So you could exploit the whole uh, role of the aircraft from low level uh, up to high flying targets, really high flyers, supersonics, you could do the works. But also you had the benefit of uh, QRA, Northern QRA was uh, very active, certainly when I was uh, fortunate enough to be on, uh, on the aircraft. So the role up at Lucas uh, was part of Northern QRA, so we had that commitment, and outside of that it was training. And of course the Cold War was on, so all of the training was designed around what you would do for real in your real, uh, real role, um, which was uh, air defence. And the air defence role is kind of sea uh, shadow, um, simplified terms, sea shadow uh, shoot. So you'd uh, be launched to either go and find out what something was, so uh, a radar station, the UK Air Defence ground environment would pick up something, they would scramble a fighter to go off and see what it was, um, and then once you identified it, then you would get instructions on what they wanted to do with it, whether they wanted it shot down, whether they wanted it shadowed to see what it was up to, whether they were just happy with knowing what it was, or whether they wanted you to shepherd it to um, a, an airfield, or something where if they wanted it to land, because it didn't violated airspace, etc. There's lots of reasons. So the main roles of the aircraft were therefore to uh, get airborne, identify something, to shepherd it, to um, shadow it, to see what it was up to, uh, which was largely what we did with QRA, uh, but also to shoot it down. And so the aircraft was always live armed, and uh, for QRA anyway. And fighters were quite unique in that um, <coughs> fighters you made all of the switches as though you were going to pull the trigger and a missile was going to come off or a gun was going to fire. You did everything uh, all the way through training. So your end result in intercepting an aircraft and whether you engaged it or shadowed it or whatever was exactly uh, what you would do for real in war. The only difference is when you squeeze the trigger, a rocket would come off or, a, or the gun would shoot. So, um, so our day-to-day -day training was to hone those skills. And of course, with the, the Cold War, the main uh, purpose of the uh, fighter was uh, air defence, and it was a long-range air defence interceptor, really, so it stood outside on the outer cats, and it was the first layer of defence for the United Kingdom. Um, behind that, you had bloodhounds, and behind that, you had rapiers, um, uh, missile defence systems, and you also had shorter-range fighters like the Hawk. Uh, so the, the Phantom was the long-range um, first line of defence, for the United Kingdom during the Cold War. Could you tell us what it was like to first strap into an F-4? Yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing really. You walk out to the aircraft and come up the, uh, up the ladder um, and you're, you're already thinking, wow, this is a long way up. Um, so it's, it's an impression of size, but you only have to look at the Phantom to, to love it and see. Uh, it's a fantastic looking aeroplane, so walking out to it is the first impression. It's kind of, wow, I'm going to go flying on one of these. This is awesome. And, uh, and then when you strap in, um, it's quite a process strapping in. It's nice. The ground crew uh, also see the aircraft off and make sure that the uh, aircrew are all strapped in. So there's a guy stood on the uh, intake there. He's handing me straps because they're a little bit behind here. He hands the straps over. I strap myself in, we check the pins, um, and then I get on with the, uh, the checks and things. So, uh, so that is uh, how you start, and then um, that's quite, quite an amazing feeling. When you actually uh, start up, go out onto the runway, and then uh, the burners kick in, and you get this huge shove up the, the, the backside from the aeroplane, and it motors down that runway like a bat out of hell. It's kind of, wow, this is, this is really cool. I'm loving this job. This is really great. So what squadrons were you based with? Actually, when I was on the um, Phantom, um, I was, I was fortunate enough to stay on the same squadron. I did uh, two and a bit tours on the same squadron, so it was all on Travel One Squadron up at Lucas. I um, deployed down to the Falklands with, uh, as part of 23 Squadron when that was still there, um, and then it became 1435 Flight, so I, I did uh, detachments with 1435 Flight. So Phantom-wise, um, mainly it was the, uh, the Travel One Squadron, Travel One Fighter Squadron which was a squadron with a fantastic heritage um, and it was seven years I did on the squadron uh, got just over 1500 hours on, on the aircraft up there in that time um, 
and it was just it was that was my only squadron really. Caroline tells a great story about intercepting Russian bears. Set a bear, yeah, thousands of them. <laughs> that, I was really fortunate. I know some guys went through uh, their careers and never ever ever saw one. Um, I was in always in the right place at the right time. I ended up uh, with a tally of thirty-four bears and uh, two badgers. And uh, during the uh, mid to late eighties, it, uh, it just kind of went wild with the Soviets sending their aircraft across. Um, and on some occasions, on one trip, I remember uh, we we got four aircraft in the one trip. So the bear was uh, fantastic because that's what it was all about for us. That was seeing the face of our enemy as such. You know, the red star on the side of the aeroplane. That's what it was all about. So doing QRA was um, was a fantastic thing to do because you felt like you were actually were protecting your country and you were doing a, a vital role and of course the, the excitement of QRA was that you could get launched any time of the day, any time of the year. So two o'clock in the morning, the hooter goes, uh, we had two aircraft uh, ready to go immediately uh, on uh, RS-10, readiness state 10, and a third one that would come up in an hour, which we occasionally had to use, we had to use that. So um, what would normally happen is the, the hooter would go, you'd get scramble instructions, you'd run out to the aeroplane, both aircraft would start in case one had problems, but we'd only send one. The UK only ever sent one fighter, so you go up on your own in the middle of the night, completely unsupported, other than speaking to a, a radar station, a ground radar station, That's, and your mate in the aircraft, that was the only um, support you had. So it could be quite lonely and dark, and especially in a, an FG-1, because uh, the, the FG-1s were based up at Lucas, uh, Treble 1 and 43. We didn't have an INAS, um, so we relied on the radar. The radar was good for spotting land, but quite often a QRA mission would take you way outside of the range of seeing land on radar, way outside the range of TACAN and things like that. So um, it's kind of um, guesswork as to where you were sometimes. Uh, so we would get launched, uh, the, the Q, QRA-1 would go first, completely unsupported, get up there as quick as possible, find out what it was, uh, which was often a challenge, and then um, shadow it, waiting for instructions. And then uh, the tanker would come up, and if the tanker had time, um, sorry, if, if, if there was time for QRA to come up with the tanker, they would launch the second aircraft, Q2. Q1 would go back, turn around and get ready to go again, and then Q2 would stay up there for the longer mission. But it varied. Sometimes Q, Q1 was just sufficient, and that would stay up there until the tanker came up. Or sometimes you would get up there and there was nothing around, so it's a false alarm and come home. So to get 34 bears uh, of all sorts of different types of things in the darkness, at low level, at high level, as pairs, as four ships, it was, it was brilliant. Do you have one memorable intercept? One memorable intercept? Um, I suppose it was we, um, we launched and found uh, a couple of bears in the Iceland Faroes Gap and they were heading off down towards Cuba and we were instructed to follow them. So we followed them all the way off the uh, coast of Ireland, the west coast of Ireland, which is a long, long, long way. We were up nearly all day. And uh, we saw a couple of tankers come up, victors uh, predominantly, come up. We took their fuel, they ate their sandwiches and went home and we were still there. <laughs> so, uh, long sortie, uh, but uh, it was good. But they were, they were all memorable, um, especially at the time, because there was, uh, if the aircraft didn't get airborne within the 10 minutes allocated, questions were asked in the House of the Parliament, because that was a national commitment. You had to have a fighter in the air within 10 minutes. Now that's a maximum. Often you would do it in way less than that, but um, it depended. For instance, if you were on the, the furthest runway, you had a mile and a half to taxi. So, you know, if you're getting launched at two o'clock in the morning, by the time you've got your kit on, uh, started the aircraft up, taxied a mile and a half, and um, uh, got airborne, that's cutting into your, your 10 minutes. Uh, but generally, guys um, did it a lot quicker than 10. Caroline talks about changing over to the Wessex. Uh, 
end of 89, I was posted to um, Chivanek, to the tactical weapons unit, as the nav instructor on 63 Squadron, flying the Hawk, T-Mark 1A. Uh, the tactical weapons unit was responsible for taking pilots and navigators um, and uh, stepping them up a gear from the training system into more operational stuff, dropping bombs, fighting the aircraft, actually fighting the aircraft as opposed to flying it or operating it. Um, before they went off to operational conversion units. So um, I ended up down there on 63 Squadron. Fantastic job, loads and loads of fun. Hawk, brilliant aeroplane. By the time I came to the end of that tour, which was 92, end of 92, uh, and go back to the F4, the F4 had gone out of service. It was sadly, really sadly, just being scrapped left, right and centre, and that was just so sad. Fantastic aeroplane. So I had to look at a change, and... Um, going back to my early, uh, early, early days of what attracted me to flying and into the air force in the first place was helicopters. <laughs> so, um, and fortuitously, at the time, the air force was looking for fast jet navigators to go to helicopters. Um, uh, post uh, Gulf War One, some of the uh, GR One squadrons were folding. Uh, so there was GR One navigators, F four navigators. Um, so it was about, I think, probably just under a dozen of us were um, uh, sought to go and take our experience of uh, two cockpit, um, two-person cockpit ops into the helicopter world. Because the helicopter world has always flown with somebody in the cockpit, but quite often it wasn't a dedicated pilot navigator like how we used to fly in the military. And they liked that option because helicopters were getting more and more and more involved with uh, stuff behind or very close to uh, enemy lines and they wanted to have that tactical awareness and just bring it on uh, another gear. They were already doing a lot of good stuff because of Northern Ireland. They were doing a lot of good stuff but they just wanted to, to bring that experience in from fast jets. So um, so they were asking for volunteers and that gave me an opportunity to say, yeah, do you know what, I've had a brilliant time in air defence but now I want to go and have a look at uh, helicopters. And so I did. Um, so I had to go through the whole training system again. Uh, Shawbury spent a long time at Shawbury flying the Gazelle and the and the Wessex, which is what I'm sat in now, uh, the mighty Wessex, a fantastic aeroplane. Um, and at the end of Shawbury, I was posted uh, to the Wessex on 60 Squadron down at uh, Benson. And um, that was my introduction to helicopters. Now, the thing about um, helicopters is, obviously, they're an awful lot slower than what I was used to. I'd had a little bit of a work down. I'd come down from uh, fast jets uh, a la Phantom, uh, supersonic capable, um, big muscle jet to the Hawk, brilliant little agile uh, fighter that it is. Uh, but it was a training aeroplane. Uh, it had a war roll. It had a very good war roll, which we practised. Um, but... Um, the advantage with the Hawk, what the Hawk gave me was the opportunity to do a visual nav uh, at low level, running in for targets and things, because we didn't really do that in the Phantom. So it gave me a little bit of uh, help there. But going into a helicopter, and now, especially this one, the Wessex, where we were cruising around at 90 knots now, instead of 420 or 540, uh, is a bit of a, a slowdown. Um, but, and all the navigation was visual navigation, so map, window, and a, and a, and a stopwatch, which is around here somewhere. Um, but, not only did the speed come down, the height came down as well, because uh, in those days, as a helicopter, uh, for training, uh, the, the defence of a helicopter is not to be seen in the first place. If it gets seen, it's quite vulnerable, but I can talk about that a little bit later on. So if you're not seen in the first place, you can sneak around, nobody knows you're there, get the job done brilliantly. So, um, so it's all about low level, and um, our normal transit height, uh, or en route height, I should say, was 50 feet. So although you're doing 90 knots, you're now down at 50 feet. And actually, when you get, as you get closer and closer to the enemy, you've got a whole load of troops in the back. So we're carrying uh, 12 um, to squeeze in 16, but perhaps add a squeeze, depending on uh, what the troops are carrying. Uh, but normally about 12, 12 guys. Uh, and you're trying to get them close to the enemy so that they can do their mission. So we used to do something called concealed approach and departure, which is CAD. Uh, 
CADs. And that means that as you get closer to the enemy, you're using the ground, you're using all the obstacles around you, you're using trees. So you're down in amongst the trees and you're flying around below treetop height, um, trading off speed for height, for noise, and you, lots of considerations so that you can get the soldiers as close to their enemy as possible without them being seen. So that was uh, the big difference between uh, helicopters and, uh, and phantoms. Um, one of the other big advantages for me was, uh, I don't know if you can see in shot, but it's dual control. Everything is dual about this uh, aircraft. So as a navigator, this is my place in the left-hand seat. So I then became a navigator, kind of um, not officially a co-pilot. I wasn't allowed to be a co-pilot because I'd not been through uh, pilot uh, training as such. I had a little go at it, clearly. Um, but I was still expected to be able to fly the aeroplane because if something happens, we're, we're, we're at risk of being shot at in the role that we did. And if something happens to the guy in the right-hand seat and you've got 12 people in the back, more in the Merlin than we'll come on to later, it's a bit silly if I'm just sat here going, well, I don't know how to fly it. So I did, so I flew it. And I got loads of hands on on, on this aircraft. And in fact, on my um, limited combat ready check, I flew with a squadron commander. We flew for 10 hours. And the thing about the Wessex is it, you hunch forward. And quite a lot of helicopters, as a pilot, you end up hunching forward on the controls. And you end up with a bad back, especially if you're flying for a long time, helicopter back and knees uh, for the crewman. So... Um, <clears throat> 10-hour mission, he wanted to give me a go, so he didn't know me really well, it's the first time he'd flown with me, so he said, alright, I'll get it up to that height, and when we're travelling between the two, you can fly, so great, so there I was, flying the aircraft, uh, and then after a while he said, right, you can have a go at the approach, but I'll take over the landing, anyway, to cut a very long story short, I ended up doing the whole lot, flying the aircraft, picking the troops up, flying off to their drop point, putting the aircraft down the ground, troops getting out, flying off to a refueling site, taking on fuel. I did everything. And at the end of the uh, sortie, this Gordon commander turned around to me and said, combat ready nav or LCR pilot? <laughs> I thought he was joking. I bet you did try to get me a pilot course, um, but unfortunately I was too old. It was an age thing going on there. So I was, I wasn't, I was prevented from... Um, what I joined today would have been fantastic because it would have been a circuitous route around getting what I wanted to do when I joined the Air Force in the first place, which was to fly helicopters, and to do that would have been brilliant. But I had a fantastic time on uh, air defence in the meantime with Phantom. So I ended up, um, yeah, on this lovely uh, old girl, uh, the Wessex. Um, retired from service in uh, 80... Late 80s, sorry, correction, um, late 90s, uh, yeah, late 90s, uh, it retired from service. So I, I was on Wessex at 60 Squadron for uh, 83, stupid me, 93, I'm getting all my dates mixed up, see. Uh, 93, I ended up on the Wessex with 60 until 97. And I got just under 800 hours uh, on this, and a lot of it, I say, it depends on who you flew with. So if you, most guys would let you fly it, some guys went, no, it's mine, and they wouldn't let you fly the aircraft, but generally I got to, got to fly it. Easy aeroplane to fly. It was used as a trainer at Shawbury, um, so easy aeroplane to fly. I, I could fly it. Um, operating it, obviously, there's a difference between being able to fly something and being able to operate it. So, um, when you're doing the, the uh, operational side of the job, then a lot more skills. And also, if things go wrong, yeah, I can fly it, but if we start getting engine fails and things going wrong with the rotors, then I'd like somebody who's got a bit more time and qualifications flying aircraft to sort that out for me. Um, so, yeah, a six. Caroline chats about the Merlin. Let's move on to the Merlin. How did this become about and what your rules? Okay, Merlin, um, I have a habit of going onto aeroplanes and they end up out of service. So the Wessex was coming to the end of its life in uh, the late 90s, um, and so my squadron was uh, running down again. And uh, there was a new kid on the block, the Merlin, but it wasn't in service at that point. Um, but they wanted uh, air crew to go uh, and help onto an organisation called uh, Ruitu. Now, Ruitu had only just formed Rotu Wing Operational Evaluation and Training Unit. And this was um, 
trials, trials flight, basically, uh, looking after all the new equipment coming onto aircraft and making sure that what we had did the job. Uh, everything from what you wore as flying clothing through to what the aircraft used for countermeasures uh, and how it was operated and all the tactics and all that kind of stuff. And I'd, I'd um, in 91st, since I got onto helicopters, um, they respected my fast jet experience and they wanted me to teach them tactics and things. So I had to qualify on helicopters to do that. So I went off and did a helicopter um, tactics course which was a whole load of fun with uh, Chinooks and uh, Wessex. Um, these days, it now includes uh, Army Air Corps and uh, Navy uh, aircraft crews and types as well. And uh, on, as part of this course, you learn how to fly the aircraft tactically, uh, but also to teach tactics. And your tactics include how to uh, avoid ground-based air defense units and how to avoid fighters. So we ended up doing fights against um, F3s and things like that. So now I was on the receiving end, now as a target, as opposed to being the hunter, which was a bit of a turnaround. Uh, so uh, as the Wessex came to um, the end of its service, they were looking for somebody to go onto this uh, unit to help introduce the Merlin into service. Uh, this was uh, an Augusta Westland joint project. And so I was really fortunate to be the first person, A, to be posted onto this unit because it was only forming uh, as, as I joined it. It moved to me at Benson. So the organization formed at Benson. I was already there. So they came up to me, renamed. It used to be Tactics and Trials Flight. Uh, renamed, rebadged. And I became the Merlin SME. And I was joined by a pilot, uh, Tony, and eventually a crewman, Dave. And between the three of us, we were responsible for uh, liaising with Westlands because the aircraft hadn't been built. It was still being built. Um, so liaising with Westlands and seeing what equipment they were going to fit to it and how, where that equipment was going to go and how it was going to be used and if it was practical to be used in that way, all this kind of stuff. So, um, so I was on the Merlin, actually, for a couple of years before it actually came into service. And it was quite an honour to be involved in it at, right at the very, very start. So... Um, the Merlin has only just left service, and we'll talk about that shortly. It's only just left service. It's gone to the Navy now. But I was with that aircraft from it before it actually came into service as a baby, all the way through to it uh, growing up, and then going off to uh, join the Navy. My first role on the Merlin was on the operational evaluation unit, um, so bringing the aircraft into service. Um, and that was from 97 through to... Uh, end of 98 um, then uh, at the end of 98 into 99 there was a few personal things going on so I took a step aside um, and I rejoined Merlin in uh, 2000 and I joined 28 Squadron uh, 28 Squadron was the first unit to uh, form with the Merlin and then it was the only unit that had the Merlin Mark III which is the Air Force version the Navy were flying um, anti-submarine version uh, already. So um, I joined the squadron in 2000 and we didn't have the aircraft then. The, the aircraft didn't arrive for about another year so I helped set the squadron up um, and get it ready for its reformation ceremony because it had come back from Hong Kong. The, um, the squadron was out in the Far East for pretty much most of its, its history. Um, and when we got the aircraft, I was then on the first um, operational conversion uh, flight. So there was uh, about 10 of us, I think, uh, who were the first crews to um, go on, on the Mighty Merlin. Um, so by the time I finished that was uh, 2002. Uh, and we were working the aircraft up. Now the Merlin um, was a fantastic aeroplane for... Uh, combat recovery for joint personnel recovery, JPRCR as we, as we call it. So we started up uh, working the squadron into that role. So it was going to go out and uh, recover downed aircrew, uh, fast jet guys that were brought down behind enemy lines. The Merlin was fantastic for it. It was long range, had very long legs, very fast, had loads of uh, good nav systems on it, had a, a forward looking infrared turret on it. It had air to air refueling capability all sorts of things that made it a, a, a perfect long-range aircraft. 
unfortunately, the Merlin was stumped by the fact that um, war changed. War changed completely. We went from the Cold War, which is where the aircraft was designed, um, into uh, fighting terrorism and uh, counterinsurgency and all that kind of stuff, which we'd been doing with the Wessex before in uh, Northern Ireland, but this was obviously following 9-11. Everybody's lives changed forever, and, and the role of the Merlin, and indeed all of uh, the UK forces, role changed. So we had to get out of a mindset of fighting uh, the um, the Warsaw Pact kind of fight and get into uh, a different world, and that's what the Merlin was born into. So uh, we worked up with the JPR. Uh, we had uh, RAF regiment guys attached to the squadron, and they were the um, the ground extraction force. Um, and we did a lot of training for that, but then it was removed because it's a 24-seat troop helicopter and you don't want it sat on standby doing an equivalent of a QRA type thing, sat on standby all day, not being moved when we haven't got enough helicopters ready for moving troops. So that was all um, kind of folded overnight and it went back to being uh, doing the same role as all um, battlefield helicopters were doing. Same as the Chinook, same as the Puma, same as the Wessex. Caroline gives us a more personal side. So, um, how did I get to fly Phantoms as uh, a female? That's a very, very long story. Very, very long story. Um, because clearly in the 80s, girls weren't allowed to fly uh, fast jets. Um, but uh, I'm uh, a transgender woman. So, when I joined the Air Force, they weren't aware of this. I was. I was something I was aware of from around the age of four. It was a, a struggle that I had. And actually, flying is what saved my life because having a focus as a youngster, I was having all sorts of issues. Um, but the world wasn't ready to accept those. Um, so I had to hide them. And so I hid them from the Air Force. But around um, uh, when I started on the Merlin, just before, uh, 90... Uh, around 98, I was thinking I need to sort my own life out. Um, so I approached the Air Force and told them that I was um, transgender and I was going to transition gender. And I was expecting to be thrown out because that was the way the world was then. But fortunately, they liked me enough to keep me in. And so I uh, then uh, served for another 16 years as myself. I was able to live and work as myself. So uh, throughout my whole career on the on the Merlin, I was uh, Caroline Page, but when I was flying on the Phantom, um, people knew me as a, a different name. Um, the Air Force never had an issue with that. Um, people I worked with uh, never had an issue with that. And uh, the job that I did on the, the Merlin in particular, in keeping people safe in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, went down very well. I was actually, I won several awards for the work that I was doing out there, um, which uh, helped people to respect the, uh, me as a person. It wasn't anything to do with my past, it was just me doing the job. And so that's how I came to be Caroline Page and with a background flying the Phantom. Down. What's your most memorable RAF career moment? My most memorable RAF career moment? <laughs> There's so many of them, it's trying to pick uh, one. I mean, um, actually going fast jets from nav training uh, was brilliant because I'd been, um, I felt really down not having um, been able to process progress through pilot training so to get a fast jet posting that was uh, a massive highlight for sure. Um, flying uh, the Westix and flying the Merlin as well, actually hands on flying uh, gave me, always gave me a big smile so those two things were big factors but I'd say the most um, the most enjoyable thing about my uh, career flying was that apart from 18 months it was all flying I, I flew I was in the Air Force for 35 years and it was a, a, an 18 month gap where I went off to sort myself out um, I was still working in the Air Force where I was on a, on a ground tour at a, at a headquarters um, outside that 18 month all of my Air Force career was flying involved with flying 
Um, so I got five, over 5,000 hours um, uh, and I flew on 17, 8 to 18 different operations um, in that time. So the fact that I stayed flying throughout the whole career, that is probably the biggest. Do you ever go to air shows? Yeah, I do. Um, I haven't been to one for a couple of years. The last one I was at was Waddington. Unfortunately, Waddington one has been off the, um, the program for a short while. Um, and it's probably not coming back, from what I understand. But uh, I enjoy going to her shows, yeah. Do you have a favourite tipple? Yeah, I have lots of favourite tipples. <laughs> uh, but, uh, wine always wins. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's white, red, or rosé, or but it's got bubbles in it or not. Um, wine always wins. Do you have any hobbies? I I, I um, have a couple of hobbies. I'm writing books, but I don't have a book to uh, show you at the moment. It's still in, in the process of being written. Um, and I'm just getting into photography, so I kind of quite like doing that. I spend a lot of time doing voluntary work at the moment. Um, but I've also just, um, yesterday, um, I was accepted on a, for a job that I've been wanting to do for quite some time now, because when I left the Air Force, I was still a tactics instructor, and I was, uh, in my last two years of service, I was teaching um, uh, European crews tactics, and I've just been offered a job uh, starting um, on the end of this month, really. I, going back to doing that, teaching European helicopter crews tactics and electronic warfare. So um, that's almost like a hobby, but I'm being paid for it. Um, also, I'm involved with uh, Black Mike. Uh, Black Mike is the uh, F-4 that was, is still up at Lucas. It was a Treble 1 Squadron Phantom, uh, uh, an FG-1 uh, K model. Um, towards the end of uh, Treble 1's Phantom era, uh, we painted one of the aircraft, 582, gloss black. And if anybody's not seen it yet, it's fantastic airplane. It's a beautiful airplane to see. Gloss black, F4, fantastic. Um, and that was in honour of the Black Arrows, because before the Red Arrows actually existed, squadrons had their own uh, aerobatics teams, and there was the Black Arrows, there was the Green Arrows, and there was all sorts of things. Each squadron had its own. Uh, and the squadron colours were black and gold. So um, we painted the aircraft in those colours um, as in honour of the uh, Black Arrows. And that aircraft survived, and it was up at Lucas, and it was taken on by 228, uh, the OCU. Uh, and it was rolled out at air shows and things. It doesn't fly anymore now, unfortunately, but it's got everything in it, all engines and everything, ready to go. And it's just been bought to try and save it because once Lucas closed, then um, there was a fear that it was going to end up on the scrap heap like all the others. So it's just been bought. And there's a, there's a group. It's been, uh, it's been provided by um, GJD. Um, but there's the British Phantom... F4 Phantom Aviation Group is looking after renovation projects for the Phantom, like 490 that we saw outside, uh, Black Mike, and the aim is to hopefully get Black Mike down to Bruntingford and, uh, and give her a full uh, renovation uh, program. So I'm helping with that, and we're hoping to raise funds to be able to get that aeroplane back up in all its glory. It won't probably get airborne with today's rules and regulations, um, but it will still be able to hopefully one day uh, run its engines again and do practice scrambles without the scramble bit. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Yeah, so anyway, what do you want to know? <laughs> do I ever get sick of talking? No, I don't think anybody that's uh, involved with aviation ever does. Well, thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and got an insight into what it's like to be a navigator on both fast jets and helicopters. So again, if you like what we do, please head over to our website and become a patron at www.aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you.